<laughs> so I've only shaved my head one time, and it was in sixth grade, and I was at this Bible camp, and it was like this like crazy thing. I had super long hair, and like screamo music is going. I'm just like head banging, and like it's in front of the whole camp, and they come with like the clippers, and like and like lo and behold, sixth grade, no idea what the bottom of my head looked like, and I have a like quarter sized mole right here, and I didn't know it. And so like my dad, he's like, oh man, now I have like a distinguishing mark. So in sixth grade, you have like these little cards that like in case you get abducted, like the police like have one and you have one and like they can know that a distinguishing mark. So my dad wrote like mole on left side of head, really big. And it's like, dad, this is in my backpack. And so I don't know, like I'd have to be okay with you guys seeing the quarter. So we could buzz my hair and then you guys could see it and it would look great. So 280, make the call, Olivia. Do, do I shave or will you give me like a level one buzz? Shave. Oh, okay. The straight razor is coming out. Mason, you're gonna take care of that for me? You can't cut your own hair, yeah. So definitely not Mason. Okay, hey, if you got a Bible, grab it. We're gonna be in Ephesians 3, 1 through 13 tonight. Before we jump in, a quick reminder, we got baptisms coming up on March 1st. So if you have yet to follow Christ in uh, taking the step of obedience and baptism, we'd love for you to do that on March 1st. So you can go to Candeo's website, sign up there. Those signups are due this Sunday, and we'd love for you to, to take your next step in that. So that was a bad experience in sixth grade, just getting my hay shed shaved. A great experience. What did I even say? I, I blanked out. Shed? My head shed? Yeah, I didn't get it shed. I still have it. That was sixth grade. Seventh grade, I had one of the greatest experiences in my life. So it's quarterfinals of my high school football's playoffs. And I'm in the junior high, like, designated section, standing next to Tommy Wilson. And we, I think it was a game-winning field goal like a walk off the field, field goal, and we make it to the semifinals of like football playoffs, high school football playoffs that year. And if you are from Iowa, which a lot of you are, you know what that means. We are going to the dome. The dome. We are going to the Unidome. And as a 12-year-old, that just like blew my mind. We are going to the dome. And so the semifinals day comes. We like load up the van. We stop in Marshalltown at this like gas station that had barbecue too and ate barbecue. And I can remember all of it because it like is just, you know, cemented in my mind. So we eat barbecue in Marshalltown. Then we make it up. And as a 12th grader, it just feels like this 20-hour long road trip because it's Des Moines to, Des Moines to Cedar Falls. Sally's Polk made it to the dome. We show up and I walk into the Unidome for the very first time as a 12-year-old and it just blows my mind. It had been, it was, that was the biggest stadium I'd ever been in in my entire life and I walk in and you know, as a 12-year-old, you're seeing like just the long, tall like bleachers that are all the different colors and you're just blown away that it's like the middle of November and you can take off your coat at a football game. You're like, this is awesome. And so we get to the Southeast Polk section and guys, we had a killer team that year. Jeff Woody was our sophomore. Stud went and he played for uh, the Cyclones, had a game-winning touchdown against Oklahoma State, thwarted their national championship hopes. That was a great moment, 2011. Jeff Woody, he was the man. Nate Sneed was our quarterback. Quarterback. It was a great year, 2006. So we're watching, and our opponent for the semifinals is Valley West Des Moines, which 
I know we're in northeastern Iowa now, but if you're aware of high school sports, especially in the Des Moines area, area, Valley is like the juggernaut of high school sports. And we take them out. It's semifinals round and we beat Valley. And so we're freaking out. We get to come back the next weekend. And it's just this incredible, incredible experience. We come back the next week and have Xavier Cedar Rapids and they were just an incredible team in 2006. So we end up losing to them, but, which was a bummer. But at the same time, I'm like, we made it to the finals in the dome. And like from that moment on, the dome has just been epitomized in my mind as like the pinnacle of high school athletics. Just seriously, I'm not even joking. To the point where I still drive past the dome on Hudson and it like, I'm like, there's the dome. There's the (laughs) dome. I'm dead serious. Some of you, like the dome has lost its glam, but I'm just like, this is amazing. There is the dome. Like second week here, I'm driving people around for the, the high school tournament for parking. And it's like talking to Don Bosco people. I'm like, you guys made it to the dome. How sweet. And like Grundy Center signs are out on Highway 20, like going to the dome. And I'm like, the dome is where it's at. This is awesome. So two weeks ago, I had one of the greatest experiences of my entire life since moving up here. Just a small qualifier. Uh, we got invited to go to the UNI Oklahoma State Wrestling Meet with some friends. And our friends happened, the, the wife, her name's Beth. She happens to be the assistant uh, AD or one of the assistant ADs at UNI. So we're going with them. Another couple jumped in with us. We meet at our house. We get in my minivan, which minivans are awesome. So we're driving this over. Beth is directing us. And at one point, you know, we're going to the McLeod Center. She's like, hey, like, don't park with everyone else. Actually, if you go around the backside of the dome, we'll park in my parking spot and then we'll cut through the dome. And I hear that. And I'm like, oh, oh, yeah, we are. So she, we get out of the van. I'm like, you know, giddy. She walks up to this exterior door. And I'm like thinking like, okay, we'll go through like this tunnel or something. I don't know what is between the McLeod and Unidome. We'll find out. She opens the door. And it's not just like a hallway. It's the actual like field area of the dome. And I'm like, no. <laughs> and so I walk in and I just say out loud, I'm like, I'm on the field of the Unidome. And I was so excited. I actually said, Natalie, come here, take a selfie. And so I like, oh, I was so excited. So Natalie and I are taking selfies down there. It, like it's the indoor track right now. And I'm just like, 14 years later, I'm getting to live my dream of being on the field of the Unidome. This is crazy. So Beth then says like, hey, you guys want to check out the athletic department like offices? I'm like, Absolutely, I do. So we go up there, check out these offices, and we're going to see the suites where she gets to watch the games. I'm like, well, that would be sweet. Maybe like next greatest moment in my entire life, not just since we moved here. Sweet, Beth, I don't know. We'll find out. <laughs> we're seeing all this, and it's just incredible. So we cut across, and we're walking across the center of the field. We go to the McLeod Center. You and I beats Oklahoma State, which that was just a ball. Like incredible. Great work, guys, if you're here. Uh, then we cut back across and coming through the second time was just as like euphoric as the first. I'm like, oh, like, you know, the bleachers, everything. Then in the center is a wrestling mat. And one of the guys that was with us, I was like, hey, let's wrestle. And so we're wrestling. And he pinned me in 10 seconds because, you know, um, I don't know if you understood that, but that's just, I'm out of shape. (laughs) Sometimes I sprint through these hallways and get out of breath. And I don't know why I do that. But he pinched me in 10 seconds, but it didn't matter at all because I was like, I'm in the center of the dome wrestling. This is wild. 
And so we're like going around and I'm like just, you know, I'm loving it because I'm at the Unidome, which has just been in my mind this, this amazing place my whole life. So here's the question. How did I get access to the Unidome? How did I get in there? It's because I knew Beth, right? It's because Beth invited us. She was the person who had the status that was, that, that was required to be able to go into the Unidome. That's how I got to go. It was because of someone else's status. The only way that I would have gotten to get down on the floor outside of, you know, Beth would have been like my athletic prowess in high school, which, shocker, that wasn't going to get me there. Just, I, don't, I know it's like an utter shock that my athletic prowess had no chance of getting to the Unidome in high school, but it wasn't going to do it. I had, you know, no ability outside of Beth inviting me to get down onto the floor of the Unidome. Here's what we're going to see tonight in this passage. There's a place that we ourselves have no ability to get to. We cannot meet the requirements to get to, but someone else, because of their status, has given us access to it. We're going to see that there's a place that based on someone else's status, we are able to have access to. And that place is the presence of God, and that person is Jesus. So, like I said, if you got a Bible, Ephesians 3, 1 through 13. And really, we're going to ask two questions of this text tonight. The first question is, what do we have access to? What is this thing that we have access to? And then second, once we realize that, how does that change our life? What do we have access to, and how does that change our life? Ephesians 3, 1 through 13. So I'm going to read the whole passage, and then we'll work through those two questions. So here's what the Apostle Paul says. He says, For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, you have heard, haven't you, about the administration of God's grace that he gave to me for you, the mystery that was made known to me by revelation as I've briefly written above. By reading this, you are able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. This was not made known to people in other generations, as it is now revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. The Gentiles are co-heirs, members of the same body, and partners in the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I was made a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace that was given to me by the working of his power. This grace was given to me, the least of all the saints, to proclaim to the Gentiles the incalculable riches of Christ and to shed light for all about the administration of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. This is so that God's multifaceted wisdom may now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavens. This is according to his eternal purpose accomplished in Christ Jesus, our Lord. In him, we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. So then, I ask you not to be discouraged over my afflictions on your behalf, for they are for your glory. Okay, two questions. First, what do we have access to? Second, how does that change our life when we realize it? So that, let's deal with that first question what do we have access to? So as Paul starts this section, he says, hey, Paul, prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. And he says, you've heard, haven't you, about the administration of God's grace that he gave me for you. So you've heard about this task that God gave me. 
And he says, the mystery made known to me by revelation as I briefly written above. So there's this mystery and I've written about it. And then he says in verse four, by reading this, you're able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. So at this point, we're all wondering like, what is the mystery of Christ? So he says in verse five, this was not made known to people in other generations as it is now revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the spirit. So there's this mystery of Christ. What is this mystery of Christ? It's, it's this thing that no one else in other generations have not, have not known, but now it's been revealed. So what is this mystery of Christ? Here it is, verse six. He says, this is the mystery of Christ. Verse six, the Gentiles are co-heirs, members of the same body and partners in the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Okay, so the Bible talks about two groups of people a lot, Gentiles and Jews. Jews are the descendants of Abraham, the Israelites. They were a chosen people in the Old Testament that God uniquely chose to be the people that he'd bring Jesus to the world through. Now, Gentiles is everybody else. It's just a broad term that's, it's everybody else. So this, the mystery that is revealed is that everybody, not just Jews, but everybody are now being able to be brought in to the family of God. So he says, co-heirs right? They, they, they are children of God, members of the same body, partners in the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. What is this big mystery? It's that all people, not just Jews, not just Israel, are being brought in to a relationship into the family of God. And then he says even more in verse 12, look down there. He says, in him, we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. So what is this mystery that's been hidden? What is this mystery that has now been revealed? It's that not just Jews, but all people have access to God and have the promises of Christ in the gospel. Now you might be thinking, okay, why is that a big deal? Why is it a big deal that all people or these Gentiles would have access to God? Why is that a big deal? So a couple years ago at the spring conference, there was a story read by a guy named... Uh, Let's see, Philip, John Phillips. And he wrote this, this story that really illustrates why this is a big deal. And uh, the speaker, Jared Wilson, shared it. So I'm gonna read this story. Some of you might remember it from the conference a couple years ago, but this sets up the context for why it's such a big deal that Gentiles would be, would be brought into the family of God. Okay, so here's the story. Imagine with me a Moabite. So that's just a person that's not Jewish, a Moabite of old gazing down upon the tabernacle of Israel for some, from some lofty hillside. This Moabite is attracted to what he sees, so he descends the hill and makes his way towards the tabernacle. He walks around this high wall of dazzling linen until he comes to a gate. And at the gate, he sees a man. May, may I go in there, he asks, pointing to the gate where the bustle of activity in the tabernacle's outer court can be seen. Who are you? demands the man suspiciously. I'm, I'm from Moab, the stranger replies. Well, I'm very sorry, but you can't go in there, you see. It's not for you. The law of Moses has barred the Moabite from any part of worship in Israel. The Moabite looks sad and said, well, what would I have to do to get in there? You'd have to be born again, the gatekeeper replies. You'd have to be born an Israelite of the tribe of Judah or of the tribe of Benjamin or Dan. Oh, I wish I had been born an Israelite, the Moabite says as he looks again. He sees one of the priests having offered a sacrifice at the brazen altar and the priest cleansed himself at the brazen laver. And then the Moabite sees the priest enter the tabernacle's interior. 
What's in there? He asked the Moabite. Inside the main building, I mean. Oh, the gatekeeper says. That's the tabernacle itself. Inside it contains a lampstand, a table, an altar of gold. The man you saw was a priest. He'll trim the lamp, eat of the bread upon the table, and burn incense to the living God upon the golden altar. Oh, sighs the Moabite. I wish I were an Israelite so that I could go do that. I would so love to worship God in there and to help to trim the lamp and offer him incense and eat the bread at the table. Oh no, the gatekeeper hastens to say. Even I couldn't do that. To worship in the holy place, one must not only be born an Israelite, one must be born of the tribe of Levi and of the family of Aaron. The man from Moab sighs again. Ah, I wish that I had been born of Israel and of the tribe of Levi and of the family of Aaron. And then he gazes wistfully at the closed tabernacle door. He says, what else is in there? Oh, there's, there's a veil. It's a beautiful veil, I'm told, and it divides the tabernacle in two. Beyond the veil is what we call the most holy place, the holy of holies. What's in the holy of holies, the Moabite asks. Well, there's a, a sacred chest in there, and it's called the Ark of the Covenant. It contains holy memorials of our past. Its top is gold, and we call that the mercy seat because God sits there between the golden cherubim. And you see that power of that pillar of cloud hovering over the tabernacle? That's the Shekinah glory cloud. It rests on the mercy seat, said the gatekeeper. Again, a look of longing comes over the face of the Moabite man. Oh, he said, if only I were a priest. Oh, how I would love to go into the Holy of Holies and gaze upon the glory of God and worship him there in the beauty of his holiness. Oh, no, said the man at the gate. You couldn't do that, even if you were a priest. Only the high priest can enter the most holy place. Only he can go in there. Nobody else. The heart of the man from Moab yearns once more. Ah, he cried, if only I had been born an Israelite of the tribe of Levi, of the family of Aaron, if only I had been born a high priest, I would go in there every day. I would go in there three times a day. I would worship continually in the holy of holies. The gatekeeper looked at the man from Moab again and once more shook his head. Oh, now, he said, you, you couldn't do that. Even the high priest of Israel can only go in there only once a year. And then only after the most elaborate preparations and even then only for a little while. Sadly, the Moabite turned away. He had no hope in all the world of ever entering in there. Guys, that story sets up the context for why these sentences are so powerful. Imagine if you were that Moabite at that, at that gate and you're, and you're looking at the tabernacle, this, this meeting place between God and man that the Israelites had set up. And you're asking like, who can go in there and who can go in there? And, and each time, you know, he's saying, well, you couldn't and you couldn't and you couldn't for this reason, this reason, this reason. And then ultimately you get to that holy of holies where the presence of God rests. And what does he say? He says, hey, only one person, one time a year for a little while can go in there. And you just feel that, that, longing in the heartbreak in the Moabite where he's just like, oh, I long to be in the presence of God and to see his beauty and to worship him. Now imagine if you were him and you hear this from Paul, the mystery of Christ has been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the spirit. The Gentiles, the Moabites are co-heirs members of the same body and partners in the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel. 
And then verse 12, in him, we have boldness and confident access through him and faith in him. Would that just blow your mind? It would. You'd be like, oh my goodness, this, this place that has been reserved and held off from me for generations and generations and thousands and thousands of years, I now have bold and confident access to enter, enter into the presence of God. Do you realize what the mystery of Christ is? It's that we have access to God. People who did not have access to God now in Christ have access to God. And it's this unchallengeable access. So in that story about the Unidome, at one point, you know, when we're coming back through the second time, we actually run into one of the assistant football coaches. Now imagine if I was by myself on the field on a wrestling mat. That coach would have been like, dude, who are you and what are you doing? And get out of here. My access would have been challenged. But because I was with Beth, my access to the Unidome was just as unchallengeable as Beth's access to the Unidome was unchallengeable. Guys, the Moabite who has been held out of the presence of God now in Christ is hearing that through Christ, Gentiles are co-heirs and members of the same body and partners in the promise of Christ and that you have a bold access and confident access through faith in him into the presence of God. And you know what that means? It means that just as unchallengeable as Jesus' access is to the presence of God, so is your unchallengeable access to the presence of God. Why? How can that be? Well, there's another story in the Bible that talks about one of these days where the high priest goes into the presence of God. And it's in Zechariah 3. You don't need to turn there. I'll just go through it quickly. And it tells the experience that this high priest has. His name's Joshua. And Joshua prepares. He goes through all these elaborate preparations for this, this day when he's gonna get to enter into the presence of the holy God. And so he goes through all the preparations. He's, he's the high priest of Israel. He goes in, and what it says is that in the presence of God, Joshua, the high priest of Israel, is covered head to toe in filth. And you're like, wait, what? The, the high priest, if anyone in the entire world had any chance of being able to be in God's presence, surely it would be him. He's like our best bet. The high priest of Israel from the right family, from the right tribe, from the right lineage, worships God daily, has more of the Bible memorized than you can imagine. It goes through all these elaborate preparations. If anyone has a chance at being in God's presence, it's him. And he goes in and before God, after all of his worship and duty and everything, he is standing before God completely covered head to toe in filth, in the filth of his sin. And you get this sinking feeling when you hear that story, because what you think is like, well, my, you know, my resume to get to stand before God is probably nowhere near the resume of Joshua the high priest. And if the best of the best in the world can't stand before the presence of God, how can I stand before the presence of God? And this creates a problem. And some of you are like, well, why, what's the problem? What is such a big deal about being in the presence of God? It's because you were created for a relationship with God. In the beginning of the Bible, humanity dwelled in the perfect relationship and presence of God. But when we sinned, we severed that relationship. And all of the longings and desires of our hearts will only be satisfied fully when we are in the presence of God, ultimately in his presence in heaven. And here is what the reality, here's the problem. God's presence is in heaven and God cannot stand the presence of sin. 
Which that creates a huge problem because if Joshua the high priest is covered from head to toe in the filth of his sin and God's presence can't stand, be in the midst of sin, how can people, if Joshua can't do it, how can any of us be in God's presence? How can any of us have a chance of being in the presence of God? Well, the story continues. God looks at Joshua and he commands an angel. He says, hey, you go and remove the filthy garments from Joshua and provide him clean garments, a clean turban, a clean robe, so that he can be washed and cleansed and made whole and be in my presence. You know what that is called? That's called grace. As God looked at you and he looked at me and he saw us in the filth of our sinfulness. People who, who wouldn't be allowed into his presence because of our sinful sinful deeds. And out of love, he looked at you and said, you know what? I will remove your filth. And he didn't just remove our filth. He took our filth and he placed that on his son on the cross. Jesus looked at you and he said, hey, I will take your filth of sin and I will place it on myself and on the cross. I will bear the full weight of, of your sin and of your shame and of your brokenness. And as he takes our sin, Jesus hands us his clean garments of his righteousness. And there's just just this incredible exchange that happens between us and Christ, where we are given the righteousness of Christ and he takes the filth of our sin. It'd be like Beth handing me her name tag and saying, you now have my status and access to what I have access to. Jesus hands us his name tag and says, you now have my status, my perfection, my righteousness, and you have access to what I have access to. And I will take your filth and your sin and your brokenness. That is how Gentiles can become co-heirs. And that's how all people can become partners in the promises of Christ. And that is how we can have confident and bold access into the presence of God. It's because Jesus looked at us, people who had no ability to get onto the field, no ability to get into the presence of God. And he said, I will give you my status and I will take yours and I will die on the cross so that you can have a status that is not your own and you can have an unchallengeable access to the presence of God, the same unchallengeable access to the presence of God that I have. Guys, that is how we can have access. So what do we have access to? We have access to, the, to God, to his presence, to the promises of Christ, to being co-heirs brought into the family with the hope of an eternal inheritance. How? Because Jesus took the filth of our sin on the cross. So when that, when we get that, how does that change our life? How did that change Paul's life when he got that? That's our second question. So look back at Ephesians 3. When that truth, when that reality, when we become aware of that, how does it change our life? Well, we get some indications of what happened to Paul when he got that. So the first thing he says is he calls himself the prisoner of Christ Jesus. Look back at verse 1. He says, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. So the first thing that happened in Paul's life when he began to understand this great exchange where he now had the status of Christ and access to God and the hope of Christ, the Christ promises, the first thing that happened was he postured himself as a prisoner of Christ Jesus. For who? For the Gentiles. 
for all people. Then he says something similar in verse seven. He says, I was made a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace that was given to me by the working of his power. So he became a prisoner of Christ Jesus. He postured himself as, as, his, as Christ, not his own. He, he was made servant of this gospel. And why, verse eight, he says, this grace was given to me, the least of all the saints. Why? To proclaim to the Gentiles the incalculable riches of Christ and to shed light for all about the administration of the mystery hidden for ages and God who created all things. Guys, what happened to Paul when he understood this? First, he postured himself as a prisoner and servant of Christ for the sake of others. And second, he did that in order to proclaim to the world, to the Gentiles, to all people, the incalculable riches of Christ. He looked at his life and he said, I'm going to leverage my life for the sake of Christ so that others might know the incalculable riches of the gospel. Guys, if you don't know much about Paul, he was a wicked sinful man. He persecuted the church before he became a Christian. And there was a moment in his life where he's heading to this, this church in a town called Damascus. And he's on his way to this church in Damascus. And what happened was Jesus interrupted his life. He's on this, on this road and he's walking to, to persecute and destroy this church in Damascus. And Jesus absolutely interrupted his life revealed to Paul who he was. And Paul in that moment for the first time saw the depth of his sin before God, and, but saw the beauty of Jesus and his grace. And when that happened, Paul leveraged his life for the sake of the gospel. And he leveraged his life so that others might know who Christ is and the incalculable riches that are offered to us in Christ in relationship with him. And here's what my prayer is as we're going into this SALT conference, that there are people in this room, all of us in this room are heading in certain directions. We have certain ambitions. Paul had an ambition to destroy the church and you're heading a certain direction and that Jesus would interrupt your life and that there would be this pivot moment. You know what a pivot is? It's this, where you're heading one direction and there's a pivot where your life is interrupted. You're heading and you pivot. Was that good? That was a good dance move. I should keep that for the fall retreat next year. Okay. And you pivot. <laughs> this is what I'm praying for. That Jesus, the same way he did to Paul, would interrupt your life and that there would be certain things that you are saying are valuable and that are your life ambition. And that as you come into this weekend, you see your sin in a whole new way that you would realize that you are covered in the filth of your sin from the head to your toes like Joshua the high priest but that Jesus's love and grace and beauty bore the weight of that sin and shame for you on the cross so that now you have access to the Father and that when you get that, that there would be things that you are moving towards now that you absolutely do a pivot on because you are just so captivated by Jesus and that you would hear the same calling that Paul heard to leverage your life for Jesus for the sake of others to leverage your life so that others could know the incalculable riches that are in Christ. Guys, there are 299 people coming from Candeo, 280 students. And I want 299 out of 299 of us to have an interruption in our life, an interruption in the things that we're saying our life is about, an interruption in the things that we're saying are, are valuable in our life. And the thing that would interrupt it would be Jesus. 
And that we would see with new clarity and new depth and maybe for the first time our desperate state before God because of our sin. But then be shocked by the beauty of Jesus' grace. Guys, when I think about my life, I just, there's just so much crap in my life. And there's so much crap in your life. And it doesn't take long for me to say, yeah, if I was before God's presence, I would be covered head to toe in filth too. It doesn't take much reflection for me to get there. And Jesus took that 2,000 years ago on the cross so that you don't have to pay for that. And so that you could be drawn into a relationship with him where you have access to God and to his presence where the longings of your soul and heart would be satisfied. And would this be a weekend that just were interrupted by God's grace and that it would completely reorient everything that we value in our life, that we would look back at our Damascus Road moment and we'd say February 2020 was then when I saw grace in such a profound way and it completely reoriented the trajectory of my life. And I postured my life as a prisoner and servant of Christ for the sake of others. That I'd say, God, if you are so good that you would come and take my sin so that I would have your status, here's my life. Use it. Let me be used for the sake of others knowing the incalculable riches of Christ. Guys, there's so many things that happen when you realize that you have an unchallengeable status before God. The approval that you hope for, the, the significance that you hope for, the security that you hope for, the, the pleasure and joy and happiness that you long for, all of those are satisfied. And when that happens, it will completely reorient your life the way it did for Paul, where you would look at Jesus and say, I am a prisoner of Christ. I am a servant of the gospel. God, use me for the sake of others so that I might proclaim the incalculable riches of Christ. Let's pray. God, it is, it is incredible that you would use people um, like me and like, like the people in this room that we don't have a worthiness, we don't have, uh, we, aren't, we aren't deserving of being in your presence, we're not deserving of having the promises of Christ, we're not deserving of the salvation that we've received, but God, you've given it to us because of Christ's sacrifice for us. And God, I pray that we would be people who see that, and that it would completely reorient everything about our lives. That we would see the beauty of Jesus, that he would take our sin and our shame, and he would bear it on himself so that we could have your presence, and we could have the hope of eternity with you, in your presence, worshiping you. God, the, the Moabite longed for the day that he could potentially be in your presence, to see you and to worship you. And God, we have the hope of that, that there's a day where we will see your presence and your glory with complete clarity. And we will know that we have no business being there apart from the grace that we've received in Christ. God, I pray that the reality of your grace would completely reorient our lives. And I pray that, that the, for the 299 of us heading down to Des Moines this weekend, that you would 
you would interrupt our lives, that we would see the reality of our need before you, our, our sinfulness before you with such new depth. But God, in the midst of that, that we would have such a greater adoration for Jesus and his beauty and the grace that we've received through him. And God, that we would come back and we would be 299 people that are never the same and would look back to this weekend and say, God, you did something. You did something in my life. You did something in our ministry. And as a result, you have done something incredible in Cedar Falls. God, we love you. Amen.